1: Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, I'm just going to to say this once up front to get it out of the way. Please try not to be jealous of my Christmas sweater. Yes, it does have Spider-Man on it, um, and the fact that I have a Spider-Man Christmas sweater and you don't is not my fault. Okay, the fact that your family didn't get you one for Christmas just means that they don't love you. That's not my thing. It's not my fault. Let's just move on from it. Uh, and but I do I do hope you had a, a, a wonderful weekend. Um, my weekend involved our kids coming down with a stomach bug, and if you've never had to deal with a three-year-old uh, puking, well, it's it's not an experience that I would especially recommend because they're not very directional with the. I'm not going to get into details. All I'm going to say is that um, if you know, like, if if you were selecting life experiences from a catalog, I would say definitely skip the puking toddler package. That's just not one. It's not worth. It's not really not. There's not much to to enjoy. Um, I could go into great depth and detail, but but I won't. Instead of, of starting with vomit today, I think I'll start with a story that, that kind of makes you want to vomit. The media busied itself this weekend with slandering some Army and Navy students, um, claiming that they were flashing a white power sign on national television. I don't know if you saw these headlines or not. Army and Navy students flashing white power um, this has been the story of the weekend. White power signs from West Point cadets and um, Naval Academy midshipmen. Supposedly, this happened during the broadcast of the Army Navy game. Navy 131 seven. By the way, here's um, let me show you the footage of this of this dark and disturbing in- incident. Uh, parental advisory warning. Very very disturbing stuff. You're about to see. But 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 watch this. Football field, and they will tell you up four or down 40, they play their guts out every single play until the clock strikes zero. Notre Dame, Michigan, Oklahoma, believe me, they all know if you're gonna beat Army or Navy. So you saw a couple of kids there making the okay gesture. Um, the okay gesture is supposedly this comes to us from the media, but it's supposedly now a white power sign. It's something that the, the white supremacists do. And so these these and, and we'll talk in a little bit about where this actually comes from, this idea that it's white power to make that symbol. And so these, uh, these cadets were, were trying to, but they were trying to promote white power on TV. That's what the media says. Now, just off the bat, okay, before we get into anything else, there should already be some red flags with this version of the story. And this, this is what I always do with, with these media, when the, when the, with, a, with a media hysteria, a media-led hysteria. My first thing is, you know, putting that aside, when you hear this story, there should be, like, what should your immediate reaction be? You should be immediately skeptical. And in this case, you should be very suspicious of the media's claims because, for one thing, even if there were some racist students at these schools, why would they throw their education, careers, and reputations away forever just for the sake of making a hand gesture on TV? I mean, think about that. Let's go with the media's version of the story for a moment. These students are racist, white power sympathizers, skinheads, cl- clan members, whatever. And now they've decided to basically go on a suicide mission, destroying their lives in effect, in order to make a hand gesture. That—that's—that's that's what we think is happening here. And there are multiple of them doing it. So is this some sort of coordinated? Thing where they all got together and said, "Hey, let's destroy our lives by making a white power symbol." It's not like you caught them in the act. It's not like this is secret footage that was released of these students flashing the forbidden sign, you know, behind closed doors somewhere, and someone got someone got in there and and, and took a you know had a hidden camera. No, it's not that. They did it themselves on TV because they knew they were on TV. So this was a collective and purposeful act of career and educational suicide. That's the theory. But we don't even need to get into that because of, uh, we don't need to get into the theoretical analysis of this because we know the media's claims here are BS because we know, or most of us know, the real reason why kids make that symbol. And if you don't know, then I honestly don't know what sort of childhood you, I feel, I feel sorry for you. if you. If, if you don't know, when you see someone doing that, um, if you don't immediately know what they're doing, then I, I don't know what kind of childhood you lived. I, I really, I feel, I feel bad for you. Those of us who had healthy and normal childhoods are very familiar with something called the circle game. If you're not familiar, then I'll let uh, Malcolm from Malcolm in the Middle explain it to you.
0: Oops. Jerk. You looked. Ow! We're doing this new thing called the circle game. Basically, if you can make the other guy look at your hand when you're doing this, below your waist, you get to hit them in the arm. It's stupid, but hey, you get to hit people. Barn door's open.
1: Huh? (sighs) Okay. Ah! Boys. Brief cameo there from Walter White. I don't know what he was doing at the dinner table, but in any case, that's the circle game. Uh, and that's it. You, you you trick someone into looking at the circle that you make with your hand. And if they look, then you get to punch them. Now, p- part of the game, as I learned it, is that you have to do the circle. Uh, b- it has to be, like, below the waist. So, you know, if I do it right now, then that doesn't count. Because it's not, you, you, you know, that, 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 because then it's too easy. If you could just f- go right in someone's face so they can't look away, then uh, then that's too easy. So those kids... Uh, the cadets, uh, you know, you saw the one guy, he had it above the waist, so he was breaking the rules of the game. The other guy, though, he had it below the waist, and so that's, that's part of the rule. Now, when I was a kid, we played this game religiously. It was, everyone knew the game. Everybody knew the rules of the game. Everybody knew that if you saw the circle, they get, you have to be, you have to submit to being punched. No running, no pleading, no trying to get out of it, no bargaining. Present your arm for the punch. And it's going to be a hard punch too. They're going to they're going to wind up and they're going to try to hurt you. And that's just the way it goes. I remember, I still remember when I first learned about this game. I was in 6th grade and it was a baptism by fire. It was uh, I had never heard of it before, but I you get to middle school and that's when you first start learning about a lot of a lot of these kinds of things. Somebody made that symbol and I looked at it. I didn't know what he, what they were doing. And then they explained to me very earnestly that I had looked at the circle, and so now I have to be punched. And so I said, okay, well, if those are the rules, then fine. And I got punched. And, uh, but I was a rookie, so there are a lot of different tricks that people will pull to get you to look at the circle. And so for that rest of that day, I was looking at the circle left and right. And I left bruised and bloodied, could barely lift my arm. I got punched probably 50 times that day. I wasn't the brightest kid, as my report cards attested. So uh, I, I, um, I did come home rather injured. But I learned. And I never looked at the circle again, it's to this day. I didn't even look at that clip I just played for you. Um, which, by the way, if you did look at that clip that I played for you, then you're owed a punch. And that's the rule. And that's really what's lost in this whole thing, that those cadets achieved the ultimate circle game victory. They got, they got millions of people to look at the circle. And so now now you all, get, now you all have to be punched. You have to go out and ask the first person you see to punch you. Live by the circle game code. We, you know, this is, we, 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 when I was a kid, we took it very seriously. I'm stunned to learn that some, based on the reaction to this, so many people either didn't play that game or are pretending they didn't play it. I thought it was ubiquitous. You know, you you didn't break the circle game code, just like you didn't break the code of shotgun or the code of called it. You know, when someone says they call something, oh, I call it, no matter what it is, if they called it, then they get it. That's it. If somebody walks by you in the cafeteria and says, I call your sandwich, and you didn't call it yourself, if you didn't, when you, op- when you open up your lunch, if you didn't immediately say, I call this, that, and that, and somebody walks by and says, I call it, then you have to give them your sandwich. They could call the shirt right off your back. That's just, that's the game. Uh, the call, the circle, the shotgun, those were the rules you lived by as a kid, um, at, at least at least I did. More to say about this in a moment. But first, a word from Rock Auto. You know, chain stores have different price tiers for profes- for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. Self-ers, can't speak. Do-it-yourselfers. Um, Rock Auto's prices, though, are the same for everybody. And they are reliably low. That part I can say, reliably low, because that's the important part. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing their prices based on what the market will bear, basically ba- based on what they think they can get out of you. That, they're not going to do that. They're going to charge you uh, the least they possibly can in order to give you a good deal and so that you can get what you need. RockAuto.com is a family business. What I like about it, it's an online business, but it's also a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Um, they've got everything you you could need. You know, engine control modules, brake parts, um, tail lamps, motor oil, new carpet for your car, whatever you could possibly need. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. uh, So you can go there and quickly find what you're looking for. And again, you're going to get it at the lowest possible price. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck, write Walsh in there. How did you hear about us tab so that they know that we sent you? That's rockauto.com. You know, there's a whole separate and fascinating conversation I think we could be had that could be had here about why kids make up all these rules and codes and traditions and then follow them so strictly, even at pain of physical injury. I mean, and you consider how kids have a difficult time following other rules and code. So when I was a kid, something as simple as, like, my parents' instruction, uh, pick up your plate from the table and bring it to the kitchen when you're done. That was very difficult for me to do and to remember to do, and it felt very onerous. So I had trouble with that, but the rule of, if you look at a circle, I get to beat the hell out of you, now, that I followed. So it, that, that that's it's interesting that kids do that, but that's a discussion for a different day. The real issue here is that the media is trying to pull a Covington on these kids and slandering them as racist, even though there's no proof that they're racist. And the one thing they call proof of racism can easily be explained in an innocuous way. And to anyone who says, well, maybe they didn't mean it as a white power thing, but they had to know that it is a white power thing. And so they shouldn't have done it for that reason. So at a minimum, it's very bad judgment and so on. No, that's that's actually not the case because they, they, they probably have no idea that it's supposedly a white power symbol. I would have no idea that it's supposedly a white power symbol. The only reason that I know that the OK sign is supposedly associated with white power, white supremacism, is because I'm on Twitter. And so I see the media talking about it on Twitter. The only place I've ever seen the OK sign characterized as white power The only place I've ever seen it mentioned or or heard of it in that context is on Twitter. Nowhere else. Not in the real world. Not even on other websites. It is specifically a Twitter thing. So the only thing we could take from this is that these students probably aren't on Twitter. And, well, it's not just a Twitter thing. It's actually originally a 4chan thing. So this is all, this association that, that is supposedly drawn now between... The OK sign or the circle game sign and white supremacism is uh, it's a 4chan hoax. And the crazy thing is that we know it's a 4chan hoax. The media knows it. and Yet they keep running with it anyway. People on 4chan decided that they wanted to trick the media into thinking that the OK sign is a white power symbol. And why did they choose the OK sign randomly as the thing that we're going to... Because it's because it's such an innocuous, normal thing that people do. It is. It's. It's a. It's. You know. This symbol has for has for hundreds of years has has meant uh, maybe the circle game doesn't go back hundreds of years. Maybe it does. I don't know. But it has for hundreds of years meant that's okay. Or you know, it, 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 that's it's been it's meant okay for a very long time. And so the people at 4chan, just to be trolls, just to mess with us. They were going to take this innocuous thing that people do and turn it into a white power. They could have done it with thumbs up and maybe that'll be next. Next, the people on 4chan are going to trick the media into thinking that if you do this, you're expressing your loyalty to the Nazi party or something. But we know that it's a 4chan hoax. The media knows that. Yet they, they run with it anyway. And if they see someone doing it, well, not someone, if they see a white person doing it on camera, They're going to accuse that person of being a white supremacist, even though they know that 4chan invented this. It's, um, it is the dumb, this thing with the, with the, the okay sign, it's the dumbest moral panic in history, claiming that anyone who makes that symbol is a Nazi. It is, it is, and I, I hesitate to say that because there have been a lot of dumb moral panics. Can you think of a dumber one off the top of your head? That now we're hunting down anyone who makes the okay sign with their fingers and calling them suspected white supremacists? Well, I think to call it dumb would be to um, do the media a favor. Uh, it, it, no, it's not, it's not dumb. It's, it's insidious. It's evil. I mean, they know, they know what they're doing. They're going to try to destroy these kids' lives no, just, just for the sake of it, just for a headline, just for politics. Really is uh, terrible. Okay, now let's, um, let's check in with Bernie Sanders. Speaking of dumb, last week it was announced that Garrett Cole, who's a baseball star, signed a contract with the Yankees worth $324 million, which, in case he didn't know, is a lot of money. Bernie Sanders never misses an opportunity to shame rich people. You know, Anytime there's a headline of somebody making a lot of money, you can guarantee that Bernie Sanders is going to rush in and have something to say about it, even though he's rich himself. So Bernie Sanders sat in one of his three houses, I don't know which one, and he responded to, um, to this news about the $324 million, responded to it with a, with a tweet saying, if pitchers can make $324 million, we can pay every teacher in this country at least $60,000. Now, this is a bit like saying, if oranges are fruits, then chihuahuas can play checkers. It's a non sequitur. It's taking two completely separated and unconnected things and trying to draw a connection where none exists. If it rains today, then George Clooney's favorite color is red. It's, it's just total nonsense. But Bernie Sanders does this a lot when it comes to rich people. He, he's the king of the non-sequitur. If rich people can buy yachts, then why is cereal so expensive? But I do want to focus on this argument from Bernie, uh, if you can call it an argument, because it's exactly the kind of nonsense that, even though it is nonsense, people find very appealing. And uh, it, it's, it's why he's so popular, because people hear this stupidity and they, they, they think it's very compelling and very convincing. So that, for that reason, I think it's worth responding to. Now, obviously, the salary of a baseball player has no connection to the salary of a teacher because teachers are paid by the state. They're government employees, public school teachers anyway. Uh, the taxpayers pay them. Athletes are not paid by the taxpayers. They're not public employees. So the reason that teachers aren't paid millions, one of the reasons is that we couldn't possibly afford to. We, we would be bankrupted, or at least more bankrupted than we already are. But here's the larger point. And that's why these two things are just completely disconnected. They have nothing to do with each other. But um, here's the larger point. Bernie's whole shtick is to take an example like this, an example of extreme wealth, and make it seem like an injustice, but it's it's not. It's really the exact opposite of injustice. I would say that Garrett Cole making $324 million is, is the opposite of injustice. It's the opposite of unfairness. And I'll tell you why. Because baseball players who make hundreds of millions of dollars make that much because they have a highly marketable skill and they are the best in the world at performing that skill. The best in the world. Meaning, of all the people who have tried to develop that same skill, and a lot of people have, these guys, these MLB stars, they are at the top of the top of the top of the top of the very tippy, tippy top of all those people. We're not talking top 1% in skill. Now, if you're a top 1%, you know, if you're, if you're among the top 1% of all baseball players in the world, you're not going to be in the MLB. You're not going to be good enough. You're talking, you're certainly not going to be a, a you know a star making $324 million. Um, maybe you'll be on a farm team or something like that. We're talking, Garrett Cole, you know, these guys, we're talking points, the top .0000001% of everybody in the world who plays baseball. That's how good they are. Okay? And we have to keep that in mind. That is how good they are. Whenever someone complains about the money that athletes make, you have to remember how insanely good these people are at what they do. We take it for granted because we see it on TV. We see it so often that it seems normal, but it's not. These people are, again, the very best in the entire world at performing this skill. They are so ridiculously good that it's hard to wrap your head around. Is it an injustice That somebody who is the best in the world at a marketable skill can become rich doing it? No. I'd say, again, it's the opposite of injustice. That is the epitome of justice. And it's not just athletes. Anyone who is the best in the world at something, if it's a marketable skill, and not all skills are, but if it's a marketable skill, um, I mean, most skills are these days especially. I, I don't know, maybe if you're, I mean, remember that trend on the internet, which unfortunately went away because I was a fan of it, but the trend of the, uh, the bottle flip game that was popular back in 2017 or whatever. If you were the best in the world at the bottle flip game, where you just flip a bottle and it lands back up on, its, um, on the right side, if you're the best in the world at that, probably you couldn't find a sustained long-term source of income from being the best. Although even that, you could, you know, do some YouTube videos. It goes viral. You make, make some money on that. So even that is marketable in some way. But um, if it is a marketable skill and you're the best at it, you're going to make money. You're going to be, you know, you're uh, barring some, some other thing interfering, some tragedy. Uh, you know, you get sabotaged in some way in your career by somebody else who's jealous. I mean, these kind of things can happen. But um, you're going to make money. Maybe not 300 million maybe more than 300 million. I mean, if you're one of the best in the world at running a business, and that's a skill, and if you're one of the best in the world at it, or if you're one of the best um, innovators in the world, if you're one of the best uh, uh, inventors in the world, you'll probably be a billionaire. Forget about being a multimillionaire. Um, So, you know, that makes you a billionaire. If you're one of the best baseball players in the world, you'll be a millionaire. If you're one of the best car mechanics in the world, one of the very, very best. Okay, if there's like a few dozen other people that are as good as you and everyone else is worse at being a car mechanic, you might not be a millionaire. Maybe you will be, but you're certainly going to be very successful at what you do and you're going to make a very nice living. Um. And if you're one of the best teachers in the world, again, you you will make a nice living. Let's think about this. Let's say that you're a math teacher, okay? Well, if you're the Garrett Cole of math teachers, what what would that be? That means that you're one of the very best math teachers in the entire world. Of all the people who do math professionally or or, or teach math, um, of all the mathematicians in the world, you're, you're one of the very, very best. Which means you're both a mathematical genius and an educational genius. Which means you're not teaching algebra to tenth graders, unless you want to. Now, maybe that's just what you want to do, and that's a very noble calling, and, and, and certainly an important thing to do. And if you know, maybe you are absolutely brilliant as a teacher and a mathematician. And, um, but it's it's sort of as far as you want to go is, is teaching high school math at a public school. Fine. Great. But then that's your choice. If you're really that good though, and and you want to climb the ladder, then you're going to be what? Teaching math at Princeton, making 190,000, 200,000 a year around that range. Um, or you're going to be at some other very high level elite cream of the crop institution. Now, this is not, you know, this is not an insult to, to public school teachers. I'm not saying that they're bad at what they do. I'm just saying that in, in, in any of these realms, whether it's teaching math or, or science or, you know, if you're the very, very best, if you are the Garrett Cole of that, you're probably not at a high school doing it. So this thing that we do, um, where, we compare the salaries of the very best athletes in the world to the salaries of, of, of sort of you know, average people in other professions, is, it's just it's silly. It's blatant emotional manipulation. You know, there's, there's absolutely nothing we can learn, really, about society from the fact that a, a high school math teacher makes 60 or 70,000 while the very best one of the very best baseball players in the world makes 300, 300 million that doesn't tell us anything about society um, other than i think it arguably tells us something good which is that if you if you're really 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 ridiculously insanely good at something you'll make a lot of money on it now the um When you talk about this, people will say things like, well, uh, uh, you know, one thing I never understand is when someone says, well, athletes shouldn't be making all that money. You know, they they just shouldn't make it. $300 million, that's that's wrong. Okay, well, who who do you want? The reason why Garrett Cole can make $300 million is because um, we, the public. Spend a lot of money on merchandise, baseball merchandise. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a big baseball fan myself, but a lot of people do. We spend, we, we watch it on TV. Again, I don't know why you would watch baseball on TV, but, um, but, but, you know, I'd rather watch, I mean, I think watching fishing on TV is more entertaining, which I actually will do, but, uh, which is a sign that I'm officially entering middle age, but you, you, you buy the merch, a lot of millions of people buy the merchandise. They watch it on TV. They go to the stadiums and pay for the tickets. And that's where all this money comes from. So there's billions of dollars floating around because of people's interest in baseball. Now the only question is, the money's there because we're spending it. The only question now is, who should get the money? Should it all go to the owners? When, when you complain that Gary Cole makes $300 million, who, who, who do you want to keep all of it? So what the owner should keep all of it or what the government, you, you think the government should take it? It's the, why the government should just come in and why should they get it? They didn't do anything. What you think you should get it? No, Garrett Cole should make the 300 million. I, I should get that. I mean, yeah, he's dedicated his whole life to perfecting this craft. He's one of the best in the world, but no, no, that, that should come to me though. No, that's, that's mine. There's, there's really, it, it, someone has to get that money because it's there for taking, because we're spending it, and so it makes sense for him to get a big chunk of it. I don't see the problem here. I don't, again, I don't see the injustice. And the other thing that annoys me is when people, when we talk about this and people say, um, well, it's just sports. It's so stupid. People, you, know, you make all that money throwing a ball. How dumb, how stupid. Well, first of all, even if it is dumb and stupid, that's a reflection of us because, again, we are spending that money. That's how he's making it. But I don't think it is dumb. Um, I think with, with most jobs, you could do that, where you could describe it in a way that makes it sound stupid and pointless. You could do that with most, not not every job. Okay, you couldn't do that with a heart surgeon. It'd be very difficult to describe the job of a heart surgeon in a way that makes being a heart surgeon sound stupid and pointless. So with, with some jobs, you can't do that. But with most jobs, I think you probably can. If you really wanted to, you could describe it in a way that makes it sound utterly superfluous and stupid, um, especially if you work in the business realm, if you work in an office building of any kind. Whatever you do, I could easily describe that in a way that makes it sound worthless. Even if it isn't, I can make it sound that way. So, yeah, we can do that with sports. You can say, oh, they just throw a ball. But the only way, you know, if you're going to say that that being an athlete, the sports are stupid and pointless, um, the only way you could consistently do that is if you're also going to say the same thing about Uh, Film about music, okay. In film and television, these are people just pretending to be other people. What does a musician do? You just make sounds come out of an instrument. What is that? Who cares about that? So you could definitely do the same thing. What what you do with athletics—that reductive kind of view of it—you could do the same thing with the arts, and I think they're very much related. And I think sports, kind of, it is is an art in a certain kind of way. But if you really look at it that way, and if you really look at sports as being worthless and stupid and pointless and you think the same thing about film and you think the same thing about music and you think the same thing about literature, even though all these things can be described that way, then you're not even a human. You're like a robot. I mean, there's no way that you actually think that. Every human I've ever met finds value in at least some of those things. And not just some value, but a lot of value. That's part of being a human being, unless you're a robot, unless you're the most boring person on the planet where you really just don't like any of it. Can you imagine meeting someone who doesn't just doesn't like film, doesn't like music, doesn't like books, doesn't like sports? Like, what do you do with your free time? What do you like? No, but as human beings, we, we do find value in these things. And uh, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to describe the value because it's not as immediately... Um obvious as being a heart surgeon, where yeah, you're fixing someone's heart so they live. Okay. That's pretty simple, straightforward. But with something like art or athletics, it's a little bit more, um, you know, it's 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 a little more abstract, a little bit difficult, a little, a little bit harder for us to understand as humans why do we like this? Why do we care about it? But the fact is that we do, and there is some deep meaning there. And I mean, it's easy enough, even with athletics, it's easy enough to see. For one thing, you know it's a it's, it's a, it brings people joy. I mean that's no small thing. It to, to watch sports, you sit down with your family, you watch you watch sports. Um, you know maybe you sat down at Thanksgiving, you watch football. It brings joy to the family. It's it's a wholesome joy, and that's no small thing. I don't see that as I don't see that as pointless or worthless. It's a bonding opportunity. You know, it, it brings families together. It brings communities together. You go to it. You go to a, a stadium. You know, you go to a football stadium, for example. I like going to the Ravens game, and seventy thousand people in the stadium. And you know, we all—none of us really know each other, or very few of us know each other. But at least for those three and a half hours, we're all kind of a community, bonded over maybe something that isn't a big deal, but we're still bonded. So it's, and, and that there's value in that too. So you could look at it as these athletes. They're very good at what they do in terms of the actual athletic skill. But they're also very good at bringing joy to people and giving people opportunity for bonding. That's no Again, that's no small thing. Am I going to say it's more important than being a teacher? No. I mean, I think it also kind of depends on the teacher. And it sort of depends on what they're teaching. I showed, you know, last week I showed you the flyer of the, uh, what was the, the flyer for a, a class in, uh, what do they call it, queer ecologies at some school in Portland, I think Portland State. I mean, certainly being an athlete is more important than being a teacher of that class. But generally speaking, what teachers do is very, very important, of course. But the good thing is if they're the best at doing it, uh, they're going to, you know make a make a fine living all right, before we get to some emails, this is very important. This is actually the most important thing we'll discuss today, and that's because one of the biggest problems today in my view is that most people in the country don't know how to properly cook bacon. And now everyone says they love bacon, right? And this has been a, a an internet meme for years where people go on and on about how much they love bacon. yet most of the time, I know you've had this experience. you go to someone's house, you stay the night. You wake up the next morning. They they make breakfast. They make bacon, and then and then you feel grateful for that. But then what they put in front of you is an abomination. It's either burnt to a crisp, thereby robbing it of all its bacony flavor, or it's undercooked and flimsy, and and, and has the consistency of microwave taffy, or it's both. It's kind of burnt in parts and then undercooked in other parts, and it becomes this pockmarked, uh, uh, leprous monstrosity. So I'm going to do a PSA for you guys. I want to show you an example of perfectly cooked bacon. I'm going to show you a picture of of, of what it looks like. This actually is is bacon that was cooked by one of the great chefs of our time. Speaking of being one of the best in the world at something. And um, one of the great chefs of our time, that is me. And I want want to show you this picture. Here it is. Now, you see there, and, and please leave this photo up for a minute. First of all, you see only four pieces. And... Now, that could remove all of my credibility as a chef if I only made four pieces of bacon. Because who does that? What sort of deranged lunatic only makes four pieces of bacon? Well, I will inform you that I ate three of the pieces before I took that picture. I ate three of the pieces, leaving four um, to split among my family. And that's four members of the family. So they each got one. I got three. Actually, after I took the picture, I had one more. So I got four, and then they split the three between them. Because, you know, that's what generosity is all about. But anyway, what you see here is, um, I want you to notice, this bacon is firm. It's got the nice singe, the nice blackened edge all around. It's got the reddish-brown coloring all throughout each slice. It's very consistent. The perfect mix of, of tender and crispy, not overdone, not underdone. The fatty parts are also cooked, not burned, but cooked. Melt in your mouth. A brilliant job by me, an amazing job by me. Now, how did I do this? Well, I put the bacon on a preheated skillet, heated to medium-high heat. Don't want it too hot. Don't want it too cool. I put it on, let it sit for about three minutes. And then I flip it, give it another couple minutes. And now, now that I've done a couple minutes on each side, now I'm really just flipping it back and forth several more times. And, and I'm trying to get that perfect color and texture. It's, it's more of an art than a science. Cooking bacon, though, is all about vigilance. It's all about loyalty, heroism. You can't leave the stove for any reason. Eyes on the bacon at, at, at the whole time. All of your senses dialed in. Sight, hearing, smell. Become one with the bacon. Tap into its essence. Okay, you're, not just, you're not just doing this visually. You also, you're listening. You're smelling. You're feeling. You're sensing it. Now, what my wife will do, she'll throw bacon on the stove, and then she'll leave because, you know, one of the kids fell down the steps or something, and she has to go check to make sure they don't have to go to the hospital. Wrong. The kid will be fine. He'll figure it out. It's his fault for falling down the steps in the first place. Should have paid attention. Stay with the bacon. Baby's crying. Kids are screaming. Doesn't matter. Stay focused. Remember your priorities. Remember the great responsibility that you assumed on yourself when you opened that package of bacon. Now You're the one who opened it. And now you're committed. You have to see it all the way through. And then here's the trick, of course, make sure to take the bacon off of the stove 90 seconds before it's done. So you want to take it off when it's a little bit underdone. The grease is going to continue to cook the bacon, so you let the grease finish the job. If you take the bacon off, this is a big mistake people make, take the bacon off when it looks perfect and you say, oh, I've got perfect bacon. You want to call all your friends and family, take a picture like I did. By the time everyone gets into the room and you're taking the picture, it's ruined, it's done, it's burned. Why did that happen? Because it kept cooking for 90 seconds afterwards. So you want to time it perfectly, take it off 90 seconds before it's done, and and then you will have perfectly cooked bacon. There's your bacon lesson for the day. Let's go to emails, mattwalshow at gmail.com, mattwalshow at gmail.com. This is from, uh, let's see here. This is from Adam says, thanks for pointing out the necessity for conservatives to make moral arguments. But now that you've said that, I'm really eager to hear convincing moral arguments for conservative stances. The two big ones for me are health care and immigration. Why is socialized health care morally wrong? What's so wrong with people losing private plans and paying for health care and taxes if it enables everyone in the country to be taken care of? As for immigration, many conservatives really do come off as xenophobes when talking about the issue it drives me crazy to hear people saying things like, take better care of our veterans before taking care of refugees. The phrase America first makes it sound like we elevate ourselves above the rest of the human family. As a Christian, I believe that all people are God's children. As a Christian yourself and a decent human being, how do you morally argument for the conservative views on these issues? Well, when it comes to socialized medicine, I think you sort of skimmed right over the part of people people, um, losing their private plans, but that, to me, is a moral problem. You're ta- this People have a private insurance plan. If it's working for them, if they need it, um, it's something they chose. And for the government to come in and say, you can't have that anymore, we have a plan and you have to go on it. That, to me, aside from all the practical problems, and I agree with you. I mean, I, this is what you're responding to. This is the point that I made last week, that when we're talking about something like healthcare or immigration or any issue, We have to make the moral argument. And I'm not saying we neglect entirely the practical argument about about things like the cost, how much it's going to cost. But we have to also make the moral argument. And I think that should be the primary argument we make because the primary argument that the left makes is moral. And so we have to meet them on that battlefield and respond on that level. It's very important that we do that. And we cannot sound as though we're admitting... That their policy ideas are more moral, but we care more about saving money because we're a bunch of sociopaths and scrooges. But on this, I think that um, it's pretty straightforward, that that's, there's a big moral problem there with taking something from someone that's theirs, that they agreed to, that they need, that's working for them, and for the government to say, no, you have to do this instead. So I, I, just, I see that as straightforwardly immoral um but then the larger thing with with socialized medicine the moral problem is um is also the practical problem is that it just doesn't work it doesn't do what it says it's going to do which is which is to 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 um do better at taking care of sick people than uh than you know than the free market does with healthcare and we know it's not perfect on either end and we could talk all day about people who get screwed by their private plans, people who don't get taken care of and and all that kind of stuff. And that's a problem. But the the socialized medicine just does not do what it says it's going to do. And so, you know, there are people, this, this is why you have the long lines. This is why people who are in countries with socialized medicine will come to America if they need something like a heart surgery. So this, it just does a better job of taking care of people And I think that that's both its practical benefit and also its moral benefit. As for immigration, um, well, again, you say uh, take better care of our veterans before taking care of refugees. That is, I don't think that's our primary argument on immigration, but that is a moral statement. And it's true that our veterans are American citizens. They've fought for the country. And for them to come home and not be taken well care of, that is a moral atrocity. And so I think the point that conservatives are making on immigration is that the responsibility of the government is to take care of its own people first. That's just, that is your responsibility. It's just like, I hesitate to make this comparison because it doesn't hold true in a lot of ways, but... um as parents, you know, our responsibility is to take care of our own children first. That's a moral responsibility. Now, the government is not our parents. That's why I say I hesitate to make that that comparison. But the point is just where do your responsibilities lie first? And the government's first responsibilities are to, maybe I wouldn't say take care of. I, I, I don't really like that, that phrase when we're talking about the government. But their responsibility is to their own citizens first. And there's also this. That if we want to be there for the rest of the world, if we want to be a shining light to the rest of the world, if we want to be able to accept refugees, which I think is a good thing for us to do, if we want to be a, a destination for the, the huddled masses, the poor, the downtrodden, and, and so on and so forth, I think all that is great. But we, we're not going to be that if we don't maintain our national identity first, we have to be strong as a nation so that we can then accept these other people and have them come in and, um, and, and then they can benefit from it. If we become just like, you know, if we, if we tear down the borders, throw open the doors, no more borders, um, and we become just like the country surrounding us, then we can't help those people anymore. And so I think that's also a moral issue, but I think it's good that you're that you're thinking of it in those terms. This is from Stacy says I want to be a subscriber. Unfortunately, I have type one. I'm a I have a type one diabetic, which make me get two jobs to pay for. But I hope you personally still read this. When Lizzo showed her butt, Whoopi from the View said, "Who cares about the kids?" Did she say that? I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but I didn't I didn't see that. When did this change? Who cares about the kids? Really, this is why it is impossible as a parent to keep our kids safe. I guess that's the main fight against kids. Who cares? Kill them or make money off of them by abusing them. Our future means nothing to the elite. Sign, mother of five kids from teen to toddler. I didn't see Whoopi saying, who cares about the kids? I'm not surprised that she said that. Maybe I'm a little surprised she said that. I'm not surprised that she has that attitude. And that is the attitude that the left has. That's the attitude the media has. This is what we were talking about all last week. Part of it, part of it anyway. This is what we're up against as parents. That the the culture's attitude is, who cares about these kids? We're going to exploit them, kill them in the womb. If they they escape the gauntlet of the modern womb, then we're going to exploit them. We're going to corrupt them. And this is what we're up against. And it's not very helpful when you have non-parents who just sit back and say, oh, it's all the parents' job. Do a better job. You know, kids get destroyed and corrupted by the culture, and people who aren't parents say, oh, it's all the pay- Do a better job, you parents. It's like you have no idea. You really have no idea what it's like raising kids in this culture today. Even older parents, even parents who, you know, are in their 60s now or 70s and had kids that grew up a long time ago, and they had their own challenges. But you really have no idea what it's like having kids today with the media being as ubiquitous as it is, with the internet and all these things. This adds a, an enormous extra challenge that, yeah, we parents of young kids, we have not really figured out how to deal with perfectly. I don't think there is any perfect way to deal with it. If you've got the magic uh, solution, then let us know. I don't think you do. You might think you do, but you don't. Thanks for the email, Stacey. Um... I think we'll leave it there. Somebody wrote an email asking about the issue of embryo adoption, which is very interesting. And I think I'll save that for tomorrow, though, because that's a longer discussion. But uh, thanks, everyone, for the emails. Again, the email address is mattwalshow at gmail.com. And we'll leave it there. Um, Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, Technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Donovan Fowler, audio mixer Mike Coromina. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Boris Johnson wins big for Brexit just hours after the media say he's down. Nancy Pelosi says the case for impeachment remains very strong after dropping the only impeachment charge she ever had against President Trump. And James Comey insists the IG vindicated him just days after the IG explicitly Did not vindicate him. We will explain why leftists deny till they die. We will cut through the gaslighting and the web of lies. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.
0: Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan, backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental one com slash offer slash